Act 3, Scene 1. Faustus, walking briskly, enters his study, where Mephistopheles is lying on an oriental chaise. Faustus is reading aloud from an open royal missive. A silky ribbon, bestrewn its wax seal, trails conspicuously, flirtatiously. Do you see? I'm bid to appear, Mephistopheles. This parchment here reads, Commanded to attend and to serve His Royal Excellency, the Holy Roman Emperor, Sovereign in Christ, King of Kings, etc., and tossed it, seeming drawn as by a string to lounging Mephistopheles, who, reciting it, grandly intoned its gaudy grand eloquence, while Faustus sat laughing and admiring him. Do you credit this inedible marzipan, fruit, not fruit, but fruit enough to toot? A Roman emperor who cannot read Latin has neither aptitude nor bearing of Caesar, except for his propinquity to Caligula. Even I'm more worthy to be a king. So you shall be, said Mephistopheles, who lifted his hand to effect this whim. Stop. No, not that. I do not want the privilege, not that, nor the clamoring, annoying entourage of lying syncophants accompanying such power, who scheme and flatter to trick me for my favor, and in the end I should be as sick in suspicion of them, become as greedy, self-centered as them, insolent, empty, and to needy humanity, indifferent, M. yawned. Well... Who is worthy of power that wants it? Is my sister there? Faustus wondered. Mephisto rose. If you want her, then. Yes, and her husband, whom I have not seen. I do not care what you say, how previously, by some life I can't remember, I hated him. You say I called him perverted miscreant. The scene plunges back into the primal darkness. A gradually lifting orb of light reveals the great dining hall of Emperor Charles I, the Holy Roman Emperor. Our stage lights climb like sunlight to the roof of the realm and shine gaily. The stage has this illusion, or reality, that it lays long length and uncanny distance a great hall, like a marketplace or a roadway, with many hundred mirrors facing many hundred windows, curtained, festooned, through which sun shines and winds flip, flickering films of silk, flaming luminous white, they caress the ones who walking pass through them, walking and talking, self-conscious and supreme, the stately procession of the king and queen. They come magnificent from that vanishing point to the very center and front of our stage, where perpendicularly the table is arrayed, an enormous banquet of luxurious plenty. Where Faustus is present in the throng that spills into orchestra, off the stage, even to the audience and you who read, who want to participate and want to share, 
all the meats, sweets, pies, cheeses, and beers. The king greets all as with benedictions, gestures that like paper birds flip the air, tossed here, tossed there, caught eagerly though they are worthless as prayers. Increases he shall otherwise take, he should give disingenuously. It made Faustus laugh sarcastically to see his bowing and scraping minion, fawning in falsity equal to his false generosity. But fortunately he was not heard nor seen. People of power expect obeisance. Oh, do not fail to give them deference, whether due by some merit or not. It's obliged to their status, it's true. Or yours... But you should know who is more important than you. We shall not anyway deny it, that in the purest sense each and every one must merit such respect by the virtue of not being better than anyone, even you. Faustus could see it's plain this king is just a man, like he, but not worse, even worse, still like he. His queen was homely, his cousin. It was marriage more for gain. Her kingdom and his thus became. One, and between them they claimed almost all the peninsula European to dominate, to rule, and to retain, for various bastards, spawn of them, conceived also with many unnamed. She spied Faustus near, and lifting up her beer, toasting him with cheer, acknowledging his sister, the lady of the bedchamber, Caroline Hofdame Honoraire. She motioned for him. Come sit beside me. An honor others regarded jealously, causing rumor and general hubbub which Mephistopheles drubbed up, taunting them seeding their anxiety among the longing onlookers, venomous, green, and covetous. So soon the crowd craning saw how Faustus amused Her Majesty with artful sleight of hand and wit, and made her laugh and favor him. She was pregnant again, which you could see, by the ball-like belly underneath her gown, her great ripeness in her flushed cheek was not fit for to be referred, but Faustus was not deterred, and put his hand on top of it. My queen, if I know a woman, and I know them well, when she's tupped laden and swollen, she'll have a wincing appetite for something rare, unobtainable, or dear. Am I right? What is it? Is this something sweet, something strong? For what thing do you crave and long? Oh, Faustus, if I could have some fruit of last year's harvest, some lush grapes, strawberries, a fresh tart apple. But I know it's winter and they're gone, and I suppose it's vain to want such things. So I won't complain. I won't but just the same. If you might, if it's conceivable, if it's fair, if you could these things obtain, I'd give you this handsome ring and the nearest ear to the king. 
The king heard this promise, but did not this sorcerer desist from his magic or his mischief? It shall be, it must be performed. It was no scandal, nor condemned. In those days even popes did not resist astrology or dark necromancy or other weird charmed things. And all of us know in modern days there are secrets in the very ordinary, how invisibly come seeds to fruition, and what is becomes what may be, how magically, mysteriously. So Faustus, with some hocus-pocus, did instantly present a bunch of grapes, a bowl of apples, and a big plate of strawberries so wonderfully ripe, sweet, and flavorful, the queen had squealed. A whole crowd of us laughed and appealed to her to let us have a taste for ourselves. But she kept them all. Oh, who could blame her? He's learned, scorned M aside. But he forgets the nasty bits, the spiders on the berries, the bruises and the worms and the discontents that make it real. Anyone can make an apple perfect. He wants attention to the details. The woman to whom M confided, whose coiffured hair was piled like pastry and whipping cream, housing glazed enameled birds and jeweled bees, looked at M as though he had a bad smell. So Mephisto bade the phony bees to come alive and begin to crawl. Meanwhile, the queen had kept her word and unplugged her ring and handed it to Faustus, observed with jealousy, and except for his sister, none should condescend to admire his prize, not that they would not have had it for themselves. She was heard to ask him if he might serve tutor and philosopher, staggerite, as it were, to the newborn king once weaned. The Emperor Charles then leaned across his wife's ample breast and interrupted them to test the power he had witnessed. He asked clever Faustus, I saw those trifles, your sleights of hand. All clever gimmickry, I admit. It's satisfactory. But can you do dark sorcery? Mephistopheles hissed at this. Oh, yes, yes. Let's see you, Faustus. Let's stop the midday sun. Let's sink the moon into a bloody sea. Get up, you chairs. Frolic now and gallop. An interlude of hijinks then did erupt. Furniture took to leaping and chasing M. Some shrieking ladies seated riding them, flopped on upholstered bottoms, desperately gripping them, while live porcelain bees stung and an ornamental songbird sung out of its curly-nested ornate hairdo, and the sky glowered in faux eclipse, earth seemed shook when continents slipped, broken when the axis of the world ceased, wound down, so the sun stopped, pendant, while the moon took a dive like a comorant, then nothing more could be seen, all blank, fading into white consciousness, blanched. At first, the unaffected huzzahed, guffawed, but then exclaimed in terror for their lives. And when reality returned, they should see that it's he, 
the ancient Mephistopheles at whom they should be astonished, and he, grinning in expectation of their approbation, delighted, bowed, and said, I'm pleased, my friends, to please, but was dismayed. All turned their heads towards Faustus instead. The king himself laughed when the sun was set aright, the world set to spin again, the moon drenching dripped tresses of seaweed shed as she arose from her seabed. Freshened naked she allured, and the ladies flung off their bucking chairs, were breathless, flushed, and not hurt, but scared. Now he was convinced, yes, you have the gift, but stop this foolery and show me something that I have always wished. And that shall be, your majesty, he asked, eyeing Mephistopheles, who tamed the furniture reluctantly, and made the bees to burst mid-air like bombs, and after the shrieking ladies had calmed down, he resumed to say, What is it that you want? Since I was a child. Since I at first could read, I've always believed Alexander of the Greeks was the greatest warrior king in history. For when he was barely twenty-three, he ventured to conquer all he could see. More than ten years passed before he stopped at last, and then he could truly say, All the world belongs to me. The emperor turned to Faustus earnestly. This man is dead, but I must see what he looked like. How does he differ from me? And what does he know that I can know? For all the adventures that are told of him relate how he saw Christian paradise and pagan deities, visited Gymnosophus, the wise wizards of ancient India, whom legends say never feel pain, who can in their own dreams awaken. Mephistopheles pouted. He'd be no help. No one makes so much a fuss out of me. It's unfair. Faustus looked to his friend. He said, Pardon me, to the king, and with explanations he withdrew M aside. Can you do this? Do you want this? Is it possible? Can I play? What do you mean? Yes, he'll come, Mephistopheles pledged excitedly. And I will be the sun god, Amun to whom he went to worship at the oasis. His father he was. You know of this? Mephisto, stuttering, turned all about. Oh, Roxanne, too. Yes, yes, sighed Faustus. Just one moment, M. fidgeted and balked. He walked away, then turning, came back. I'll return, reassuring, said. Tell them. So Mephistopheles forced through the crowd to depart the stage left as to a changing room, where he transformed and brought forth the dead, Alexander the Great and Roxanne his paramour, the daughter of Darius, whom Alexander slew. Faustus announced, Your Majesties, my lords, my ladies, your grace, your eminence, may I please present for your highness the form, the figure, the persons of Alexander, ancient world's emperor, and Roxanne, his queen, Persian princess, and in your honor also comes Ra, who is called Amun, god of the sun to the Nubian, 
whom they say fathered the one, Alexander, who would be Egyptian, and is not Greek, nor Macedonian, is the son of God, not son of man, is never dead, but shall be risen, arriving from the fields Elysian. From the anteroom, with a burst of wind, which Mephistopheles contrived, which broke the doors and drove the crowd to panic and to part, a wave ripped through them, they entered, trumpeted, Alexander came first, a man of modest height, glorious and handsome, blond and muscular in his beauteous prime. He wore the magic armor of Achilles from when that demigod mangled Hector at towering Ilium, slung across his back his bronze shield, Herculean deeds embossed on it in lustrous illumination of uncanny toils and trials that seem inhuman, blazed as with glare of sunlight inlaid with gold. But iron was his sword, the only thing he wore, which had no ornament, whose only value was that it killed. He had no helmet, but his hair, as they told, was full and thick, a lion's brazen mane, he was not perturbed by gasping amazement of this strangely dressed foreign audience. Behind him closely followed Roxanne, in transparent silks her body showing, and the men were eagerly noting, and the women ashamed foreseeing how voluptuous her breasts, plum-tipped and melanous, how naked her navel and shaven pubes, for these Greek prefer no pubic hair on women, but like their pudendum bare. Her headdress was heavy, laden with roping jewels, pendants, and necklaces draped, and hung down her globed breasts. She gave no blush for near nakedness. Last came Amon, Mephistopheles, companion of Faustus in his disguise. The head of a ram, or was it the crown of great horns? It was hard to tell which one he had adorned. In the stiff skirt of the Egyptian with Ankh raised, in his thrust hand he advanced solemnly, and so frightened some women they actually peed. It delighted him through and through, and he made the most of his show, and intoned his mystic hollows, in words they'd never know weren't words of Egyptian, but obscenities in Latin. Faustus rolled his eyes, which the king mistook, to think he was entranced. He wanted then to speak, to ask of him his questions, but Amon made a gesture which took everyone aback, while Alexander, so unimpressed by what he saw, sent Roxanne back to return to Elysium, and thence made that way also to depart except Faustus made him start. Mephistopheles, in this interruption, transformed himself from God to a man. No one saw where he'd gone, but murmuring, still afraid. While some men chased Roxanne, and Alexander, detained, was seated at Faustus' hand, and seemed much smaller, and now as common as a spoon. The audience settled quietly when the emperor bade them. Faustus abiding asks, 
Our emperor wishes you convey, as one imperial to another, how you won and how stayed, how ruled and how maintained the empire that you obtained. It was that truth is due to virtue, by wisdom sought by just pursuit. Men gain nothing by their cruelty, nor is conscience won by tyranny. That rules best which rules less. The people are like little fish. Cook them gently, don't use grease. When you must, be either lion or fox. Lionize the weak, the stronger outfox. Eat them when they're young, let the old die on their own. Women are not worth your time. Gold knives are not for bread. Do not use plows to cut off heads. I am perplexed, the emperor said. I do not understand the temper of your aphorisms and sage advice. Faustus made sure he was understood. Give away your money. It shall fester like boils on your bottom, blister and complain, while you sit upon your sumptuous throne. My kingdom ripened, and my cities burst with greater wealth, obtained because I gave to treasures of the Orient the liberty to go. No more poor ones wanting, no more rich ones hoarding to poshes that had held it. I expressly explained how wealth that spreads shall grow again, seeds in much manure, freshly burgeoning. So, from that day, Charles changed. The emperor, like Ashoka, felt his conscience shamed, and in like published edicts he vociferously proclaimed, All wealth shall be forsook, all kings and churchland freed, nobility, merchants, and bankers must share, must give away what access they possess, of which indeed none needed beyond a care. No more poor will there be, no more starving anyway. The orphans and the widows saved, the infirm and demented thrive. All will be for all, fortunate and healthy. <laughs>